Hello and welcome to Alaska Conversations. This is episode 13 and my guest today is me. Today I'm going to be doing a monologue, something that I have not done thus far on this show and it's something that I was looking to avoid when I started the show. But today there are extenuating circumstances in our world, so today is going to be a difficult show. We're going to discuss the coronavirus and its fallout the oil price war and what and its fallout, what that might mean for Alaska, the dangers of a crisis and how, though I have faith that this will all eventually pass and become a story that we pass on to our children and our grandchildren, Alaska may not be so lucky. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. This is your host, Casey DeShock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. The show isn't broadcast live, so I am recording this Monday, March 23rd for context as you listen to it. Generally, I've been trying to avoid having any sort of show that is time-bound. This isn't necessarily an outlet for news or, or uh, breaking, uh, breaking public opinion, but as, as you know, the, the coronavirus is something different, and it's posing a, a larger threat to Alaska, and so I'm talking about it. This may not be relevant in eight months. Perhaps it will be prophetic. I am unsure, and I believe that everybody is unsure exactly what this is going to look like. I anticipate that we'll be looking at another truly unbelievable drop in the Dow this week. We're probably going to be trading around, uh, we will see more than likely a 16,000 range in the upper 16,000s. We'll break through 17,000. We're probably going to see oil touch $18 a barrel, and, and by that I mean trading under 19, 1890, 1895. And there are some extremely bearish opinions about what the unemployment numbers are going to look like. I am not as... I, I don't believe that they're going to be as bad as what are being said, but we're still going to see in the neighborhood of 1.8 million new unemployment claims, and it could be slightly worse, and I will be surprised if it's substantially worse. We're also going to see, though, on Monday as I'm recording this, we're looking at uh, a bailout package which is falling apart that won't hold true for the entire week. We will see an economic bailout to the tune of $2 trillion, perhaps more, and that's a significant number. It's hard for anybody to wrap their mind around it. And on top of this, we're going to see lockdowns across the country where at the beginning of this, they've been saying that it's going to be 15 days or that um, we're, we're going to bend the curve. In some of our more populated, populated areas, we're seeing that bending the curve – to match medical supply or medical capacity, regardless of our best efforts, is is not going to work. And so, the 
lockdowns are going to continue to be a pressure on our economy, supply shortages, and we will be essentially on pause. Something something that for context that people need to think about is that this is something that our economy has not gone through. And I'll explain this later on in the show, but Sometimes we're, we're comparing it to World War II or the Great Depression, the Great Recession, other events that have happened. Putting the global economy on pause is something that's uncharted. It's new. It's unbelievable. It's something that um, we don't know exactly what this is going to look like. But let me talk first about Alaska Conversations before I really get into the nitty-gritty because I've been battling with the idea of whether or not I should even do a show during this week. And and when you're doing a, a show for somebody to listen and consume, of course you want to move the, the needle of public policy, of public opinion. You want to just deliver great ideas. And so when I set out to produce this podcast, my intentions were simple. I wanted to provide an in-depth conversation about topics related to Alaska. I didn't. I, I think that Alaska is facing some serious problems, and that we are we are talking about things more from a political standpoint rather than looking at something pragmatically. There was a hole, I believe, in any media, any form of outlet for people to discuss pragmatically what exactly we should do, and so I wanted this show to be something different, and it it's always struck me as strange that if I've never met you before and the only piece of information that I have about you is whether you're a registered Democrat or whether you're a registered Republican, I basically can assume where you, what you think about climate change and what you think about gun rights. If I know your party, I can basically understand what you believe about paid family medical leave. And I'm also going to know what you think about oil taxes. And none of these things are related, though. We are are bending our opinions to the political party rather than looking at it pragmatically. If you go back in time, 40 or 50 years, there was much more... We were still, we've always fought and we've always had problems with um, this political party doing this or this political ideology doing this. However, there was much more, uh, many more opinions. The fights weren't this party versus this party. There were factions inside of the Republican Party of which supported X, Y, and Z, and those were supported by factions in the Democratic Party that supported the same thing, X, Y, and Z, in the portion of the Republican Party which opposed X, Y, or Z, and a portion of the Democratic Party that opposed X, Y, or Z. Today, the parties move much more in lockstep, which causes, which causes a lot of the polarization in the country. Additionally, when I set out to begin this podcast, I pictured who might listen. I had to have a target audience. And so I could, I could seek out extreme partisans or people with strong opinions. I could seek out young. I could seek out old. I could I could target men. I could target women. But I decided I would shoot for an audience that wants to discuss tough topics, that are able to discuss tough 
tough to- tough tough topics, sorry. I wanted to be able to talk more freely without offending somebody without without somebody saying that that it was insensitive because when we look at tough topics people are going to be offended and when we look at tough topics people are going to be uncomfortable and today is going to be that show where things are going to get uncomfortable and i ask that you you go along on the journey with me and you think through the topics and see whether or not there's any truth to them and I always wanted this show to be something that would start to move public opinion and public policy and create a more in-depth dialogue. And all of my indications are that that's precisely the group that I have listening. That's precisely the group that I am reaching. And so I warn you again that this show and these topics aren't easy to talk about. So first, talking about coronavirus... It's, it's a very serious issue, and I have no medical experience, and so that's not something that I'm going to add into the public sphere. I don't need to talk about whether or not coronavirus is serious, whether it's not serious. I mean, everybody's already understanding where we're at with this. But let me lay out a few of the things that just a layperson can look at, and if you, if you think about it, I think you would reach the same conclusions. Number one... It's absolutely incorrect that we have the number of people comparing coronavirus to all of these other uh, flu seasons, all of these other uh, uh, pandemics, epidemics, etc. And the reason is, is that if you look at the swine flu or you look at some of these other uh, other um, events, we're looking at numbers that covered the course of 18 months, and, and this one is not covering 18 months. When we look at those, we were much closer to a vaccination than we are today. When you look at those events, you had, um, you had a, a situation of which they may not have been as contagious or they may not have been as deadly because it's hard to think about if something kills 0.2% of the population as compared to something that kills 1.4% of the population, those numbers, the orders of magnitude, the, the and, and the population spread is so much greater that it's hard for us to even think about. And some people would say, "Well, we're not taking it, we're not taking it that seriously. We should have, we should have um, had everything more prepared, and we should have, uh, we 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 should have." We should have had the tests and everything set up. And and in large part, that's probably true. But the same thing happens when you have a – when you live in an area that is prone to uh, natural disasters. When you live in an area where a hurricane may come every year and – 85% 85% of the time, it's a Category 1 hurricane, and you get through it just fine. And then one time, it's not. One time, it's not okay. And it's very difficult for a population. We, we have seen the threat of pandemic over and over and over again, and it's never really turned out the way that it is today. And so it's very hard to, with today's information, to go back 60 days and say they should have known that this was going to happen. 
all of the same employees that worked in the government today worked in the government under other pandemics, many of them at least. And so there's going to be warnings and there's going to be worries, but it's very difficult and we should we should avoid taking today's information and applying it um, to the past. Another thing is when I talked to my brother, my brother lives in China and we talked very much about the spread of the coronavirus. And this goes back to December. He started to talk about this coronavirus and started to make its way onto the news. And I, I said, well, you know, that's a tough situation. And their situation continuously, um, continuously grew worse and more dire and worse and more dire. And he didn't, he doesn't live in Wuhan. He's in Shandong province, um, a little bit further away, not quite as bad, but suddenly they said, look, you can't go to work and you have to be quarantined in your home. And they were enforcing the quarantine by drone and the people were wearing wristbands so that when they left their house, they, they would have to be, um, scanned and scanned back into their apartment buildings. And, and as we talked over WeChat, um, I said, well, you know, good thing it's not in the United States because we would never, we would never uh, submit ourselves to that. And now we can see how quickly this has ex- uh, escalated. It has become something that none of, I don't think anybody could have imagined a global quarantine uh, on the scale of what's happening. And we haven't even seen what's about to come in the United States yet. But I said that one of the things that we need to talk about is the fragile scenario of a crisis like this. Because what scares me and what keeps me up right now is how quickly we've adopted this change. What scares me is how quick we have become to uh, begin to ridicule somebody that is not going into quarantine, to ask for the National Guard to, de- to be deployed to enforce different quarantines, to bring the same drones in to enforce quarantines, for people to say that they would, they would very willingly uh, suspend the right to appear before a judge or jury if you are violating your quarantine for the greater good. And so, as promised, a difficult question would be, does the greater good even exist? Think about it for just a second about whether or not the greater good really exists. And what I mean by this is, is there anything that we can do centralized in order to protect ourselves that is going to be for the greater good? Because what does the greater good mean? Does it mean that everybody benefits? No, it does not. The greater good means that there are going to be some losers. And in this time of coronavirus, in this time of pandemic, unseen, unchartered, unknown, we are in a land of the unknown right now. What many people are doing is they're looking at people and saying, I can't believe that they traveled. I can't believe that they're not locking themselves in. And they're not even acknowledging that regardless of what 
greater good that you're trying to seek, there are going to be losers. What are you supposed to do if you do not have the money to feed your family? Because it's very easy to take tests and look at numbers and put the metrics up and say we're going to stop, we're going to bend the curve, we're going to stop all of this. Those numbers are easy to measure, but what's impossible to measure is the increase in child abuse because of the strain of the economic strain of this situation. It's very difficult to measure the abuse of women or or potentially the abuse of men in strained marriages during this time. It's very difficult to measure the lost moments because there are moments that you cannot get back from from these from from this situation. There are life events that you cannot possibly recover and we are losing those. And we can we, we can do that for the greater good and it is fine for us to do that. But everybody should keep in mind that there are losers in this situation regardless and and that their risk if you just took the numbers Logically, their risk of coronavirus, their own individual risk of coronavirus is not as serious as the risk to their family. And we are asking them to uh, sacrifice their family for the greater good. And it's a very difficult thing to ask. Now, what's important to keep it, what's important to think about here so that you're not saying, okay, well, this is a flat earther that, that. that isn't serious about coronavirus. Another thing to keep in mind is that this has been a global reaction. So regardless of what America was going to do, the global economy was going to take a hit from this. And we were ba- we were eventually going to be instituting some, some of these uh, same policies in the United States because of the seriousness. And I don't want to, I don't want to um, underplay the seriousness of coronavirus because it is different. It's very, very different. So we couldn't have sheltered ourselves from this entire crisis. We just could not have. But what's important to think about as well is what happens if, what happens if all of this still overwhelms our medical community? Everything that we do still overwhelms our medical community. But we do it with a destroyed economy. So that's where... Uh, what what I was talking about, the dangers of a crisis are that this crisis, it will pass. We will get through it. Um, it, it is likely going to be a larger um, downturn than, than what some people are painting it. But uh, on large part, months from now, life will probably return to normal. Some people may think right now in this panic moment that, Life is forever changed, but life will, it, it will at some point return back to normal. I have that faith. I don't believe that people are going to only talk over Skype for the remainder of their life. So we will return a little bit to normal, but what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to look back on this moment, kind of the same way that we look back at World War One, we look back at World War Two, we look back at the Great Depression, and the numbers and the data that we look at are going to be able to be, uh, they're going to be 
able to be manipulated a little bit. And it's not going to be data-driven when we look back and we see whether or not we reacted correctly. Because somebody's prior, some of their prior-held beliefs, as I was talking about the political party stuff earlier, some of your prior-held beliefs are going to be things that influence the way that you interpret this data. So what I what I think is that when we look back on this in three months or six months or a year, we're going to have to be very careful not to say, well, this it, if we wouldn't have done anything, it would have been ten times worse. Or if we would have just instituted X or Y or Z, it would have been worse. Or because we did this, we fixed everything. Because that's not going to be the case. As we went into this crisis, Amazon stopped international travel and, and traveled to China in um, February. Google, and Coinbase, Twitter, Indeed, Oracle, Apple, all of these companies before the United States government or before any city or before any state, they they promoted their, their employees to work from home, and so they were taking actions without government action. Nestle asked its employees not to not to travel even domestically, but certainly not internationally. Major League Baseball shut down before the government did anything. The NCAA shut down March Madness before the government did anything. The NBA canceled its season before the federal government did anything. And then, after all of this movement was happening, we knew we knew that there, you know we can socially isolate some of the more vulnerable population. It's something that we could have taken the steps to do. But we moved to a federal, or not a federal, but you know, a recommendation that everybody begin to hunker down, and then cities in San Francisco, and then New York, and Washington, and, and California, Anchorage now, with the hunker down policies, they were all happening after the fact. And when we look back on this moment, there will be a large segment of the population that says we didn't do enough. And what we're going to what we're going to forget, what what is very likely that we're going to forget is that factories were repurposing before people recommended or people demanded that they begin to produce supplies for the medical community. Factories started to repurpose of their own accord. We couldn't get supplies around the country fast enough, so we took trucker regu- we took the regulations that say that truckers can't drive over eight hours in a given day. In Alaska, it's a little bit longer, but we took those regulations and we eliminated them so that we could get supplies around. We looked at medical licensing and we decided to relax them so that we could move human human capital and labor around to flex it to the areas that needed it the most. And we were also looking at liability insurance so that more manufacturers can produce N95 masks so that we could get supplies around. So there was a there's a giant victory in the deregulation of some of our markets and that is going to be forgotten and it's going to be it's going to be overshadowed by the ideas that what we needed to do was nationalize our supply chains and what we needed to do was to nationalize our factories and we and and to continue on with what we're what we're doing now where we're going to bail out a company because 
the government essentially shut down their business. And if they want to stay in business when this is all over, the government's going to have to have an equity share in that company. And that's a very dangerous, it's a very dangerous situation to be in. But overall, all I can say about coronavirus is that we've bought, we're in, we're in this now. And now we have to look at how it is that we can recover our economy because one one would say, well, if we get done with the lockdown, what we can do is we're going to provide a stimulus package and that itself is going to keep our economy going. We can mark water until tread water until until it's time for us to get the economy back going, to, to unleash the economy and People are thinking that maybe it will be a V-shaped recovery. And I disagree with that. I disagree with it wholeheartedly, and, and I don't even think that a stimulus package would work because when you look at the Great Depression or you look at the Great Recession of 2008, what happens in these situations is you have a catalyst which creates either the contraction of the money supply or the co- contraction of, of supply in general, because so you stop producing the same amount of goods there's a host of reasons that that can happen a host of reasons that can be the catalyst for that but but what's generally understood is that the demand for goods starts to move away and and we're not producing en- enough and so through lower interest rates through a stimulus package we can drive we can drive up demand keep the spending going and to to balance out our economy and give it a leg up so that we can continue on this outside shock where we're not producing anything we're forgetting very much the margins where you have a business that only had enough revenue to cover a month shutdown and there's not there's not a whole stream of pent up demand that's going to be jumping off of the shelf. So if you if you don't eat a meal at a restaurant or you don't go to a movie or you don't go and do some of these things, it's not as if you do double or triple or quadruple in when things open up. Things will slowly, slowly return back to normal. Those businesses will not have this huge influx of money as soon as this is over and many of them are going to go out of business. Now, you could argue that when they go out of business that there will be buyers to come back into the market and to replace. So if you have a bagel shop in Anchorage and the bagel shop goes under, you're going to have a new bagel shop owner that comes in and and buys that property or at least leases that property from the commercial owner and begins a new bagel shop. And so maybe it's a more efficient allocation of of our economy in the long run, but that's, that's again, something that if you look at the next 18 months, if we don't have a vaccine or a clear idea of how this thing is going to end, who's going to make these investments to start the new company, fearing that the same thing will happen in the fall. And so there's going to be this continued contraction in economic activity, which 
will cause more and more businesses to go under, and those can't be replaced. When you have a consumer, somebody that's going to work, and the retail sector gets shut down, they're going to be taking on more debt, probably through a credit card. The stimulus is not going to be enough to cover rent and feed your children and to pay for anything else that you have. You may have had too much debt to begin with. But when you come out the other side, not only are your wages not going to be extremely increased, not only will the stimulus not have been enough to cover all of your living expenses, but you're going to be in in greater debt than you were before. You're going to be in a worse situation than you were before. That's what's going to happen. Some of these businesses are being asked to take out loans to take on more debt so that they can stay alive. And that, that may be the case. But even if it's at zero interest, even if it's all of the all of these scenarios, the businesses, the ones that survive are coming out in a much worse situation in a much worse footing than they were in before this crisis. And what could be even worse would be if more and more of these businesses, if this begins to drag on to four to six weeks and more and more of these businesses are determining that there that it is no longer worth it to them to open up. Because you're forgetting that as you as you furlough employees and you get rid of employees, it's very hard to attract them back. So when you have employees and you go into this long-term shutdown, let's say it's four or six weeks, there are going to be numerous, there's going to be a, a large number of employees that do not want to come back to work. Their life will adjust. Their unemployment will, this is a catalyst for them to move on from their current employment, and they're going to go find something else to do. And so these businesses have this, have this large structure where you had a, a great manager and you had great people working underneath of you, and that is going to be destroyed, and you have to rebuild all of that. That's going to take a long time. It's going to be inefficient. It's going to cost the business owner more. Another thing about this is that I think that a lot of people are being being insensitive to the realities that some people face. And, and, and I, this can be highlighted very frequently by, let's say, uh, state employees that are just demanding that, they're, that they don't go to work. There are other people that that are praying that they could go to work, and I think that it that it's uh, it, it's not an approach that we should take because if if you're a state employee or a federal employee, or you have a job that's easy to to move to working from home, it's very easy to say why don't why doesn't everybody hunker down? But I think that we have to understand that those the workers out there that can't work from home that are not going to continue to receive a paycheck during this time. And, and, uh, it's important, but let me move to to oil prices. So that was a little bit of of ranting. I'm probably, as we see more as guests come on later, when we get to episode 14, 15, 16, we're going to be working through all these things. So I'm, I'm really just throwing out this information for, for you to think about for the week, but let me talk in an area where I'm probably a little bit more comfortable and, and understand it much more than a global pandemic. And that's the oil crisis 
that is brewing, that is happening, that is here in Alaska. It's it's here to stay. Um, right now, we're, we're going to be looking at oil trading probably below $19 this week. Like I said, um, we're in the, the 21 range right now, um, but it's certainly going to go lower because the demand of oil is absolutely tanking and we have influence from from OPEC countries increasing the supply um, when you look at, at historically oil prices <clears throat> at one time I, I studied energy policy for a little bit I talked about this a, a bit in episode 2 with, uh, with Rick Whitbeck but the idea in when I was doing that in the mid two thousands, the idea was that our supply was extremely limited, and that supply had actually peaked, and we were not going to get any more easy oil. And so, as demand continued to grow, it I mean, it almost grows linear. I mean, it it grows very consistently every year as as more and more. Uh, more and more countries start to modernize. We get more efficient in the developed world, and so our demand drops maybe just a little bit, but the developing world comes in, replaces that demand. It grows very consistently every year, the demand. Well, the idea was supply was going to continue to shift to the left, which would mean a, a decrease in supply. And so it was becoming more and more rare. There were people that said that oil prices were going to hit $200 a barrel. Alaska itself, in 2008, 9, 10, as oil revenues went through the absolute roof, we began to build out our infrastructure in such a way, or not really our infrastructure, but really just to build out our budget in a way that, that planned for $100 or $120 a barrel oil. And, and now we are where we are. When I look at the oil prices, I go back to 1973, the oil embargoes, and what happened. When we went through this in the 1970s, in the early 1970s, it was it was a very controversial whether or not Alaska was even going to build this pipeline. That was not a that was not a slam dunk. In fact, it was the vice president of the United States had to come down onto the Senate floor and, and cast a vote because we were tied 50-50 of on whether or not it was something we were even going to do. And the reason that that happened is because you had external factors which had taken the oil price in inflation-adjusted terms and increased it by two or 300%. It, it went from, if you adjust for inflation, it went from what was the low 20s up to nearly $60 overnight, just that quick. And so Alaska began to <clears throat> to uh, to build this infrastructure and 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 change the the trajectory of the state, change our revenue picture forever. That shock did not end right away. It changed the perception of the world, and so prices continued to grow through the nineteen the early 1980s. 
If you're Alaska, you're 1973, you should really look at your 1973 as your 2001. 2001, after September 11th, the world was changing again. We were getting ready to go into war, and and so prices began to rise. And we were also a long ways away from when when we started to come up with the theories of peak oil, um, peak oil supply and, and easy su- oil being unavailable. Well, in in the 1970s, those when those theories started to come out, it takes a while for them to take hold in the population, to have enough people do the studies that say, okay, we are actually really running out of oil. And so 1973 is very analogous to 2001. We were at a relative price bottom, and then all of a sudden prices, because of external factors, started to shoot up. Public perception fed, continued to feed the idea that oil prices were going to continue to increase. And so over the course of the next seven years, oil prices drove up all the way to their peaks in 2008. So your 1973 is your 2001, and your 2008, seven years later, gets you to 1980 on that back end. This is a confusing way for me to say it, but but you can find it. if I mean, you can go to Macro Trends, um, any of these other uh, sources where you can look at historical, and I'm looking at WTI crude. Get it. Make sure that it's um, adjusted for inflation. Look at all time, and you can see this see the, this trend that I'm that I'm telling you about. So 2008 is the peak, just like 1980 is the peak, and you begin to see oil prices slide. Now, our, in our 2008, we had uh, the financial crisis, which immediately shocked the markets, but oil prices recovered and continued to, to stay up there until around 2014. So from 2008 to 2014, you have six years. And if you go back to 1980, the peak, the previous peak, go forward six years, you get to 1986. And in 1986, you had a, a drop in oil in early 1986 that took it, um, took it from roughly 72-ish dollars, if, if you adjust it, down into the mid-20s. Um, that would be your 2014, and our, in our 2014 was actually a drop from roughly 111, 110 down into the uh, low 40s, upper upper 30s. I mean, briefly for for a very short period of time, we we traded into the upper 20s, but that that wasn't sustained. It was really in the upper 40s. After 1986, oil company Alaska went into a terrible recession. You had jobs lost and, and a serious contraction. Same thing has started to happen. It started to happen in 2014, but our economy was much more resilient than it once was than it was in 1986. And additionally, we had billions and billions of dollars in savings, so we could soften the blow of these lower oil prices through our constitutional budget reserve. Statutory budget reserve, etc. Well, <clears throat> once once this happened, the 2014 happened, and calling that 1986, 
um, the markets, the markets really tried to settle out, tried to find some more efficiencies. Some supply was cut down, but markets generally kind of started to recover, and and that's what happened after 1986. I mean, very slow recovery, and it was it was uh, bolstered by the Persian Gulf War in the early early 1990s. For us, if you look at today and you go forward five years to 2019, our prices were looking like they were going to recover. And then finally, one more, one more catalyst, which finally puts the death nail in oil for a for a serious amount of time. That's our 2020. And so, if if I'm just looking at the numbers, I say oil goes to $14 a barrel. If you just this is just looking at trends, historical trends. Of course, other things could happen. But to replay the trends, we likely have another eight years of, of serious pain and dwindling. And another eight years of serious pain and dwindling in our oil production is not something that we can sustain. On top of that, on top of that, we have a change in the sentiment of the world where JP Morgan is saying that they're not going to invest in in oil projects, particularly in the Arctic. Wells Fargo says the same. Goldman Sachs says the same. Barclays says the same. And these companies need to have some form of outside money when, if you want to get uh, wildcatters in. ConocoPhillips, they can use other operations to finance their Arctic operations. Same with ExxonMobil. Attracting new development on the slope is going to be very difficult if companies are struggling to find financing. And it's not just the large banks not financing. What you have is uh, pension programs across this country. I mean, you can think if you're in California and a uh, large portion of your state employees' pension plans are invested in oil companies, that there can be a, a claim that oil company that the pension programs should divest from, to be socially responsible, should divest from oil companies, which drives down the stock prices, takes away uh, capital for these companies. You have college endowments across the country that are saying that out of social responsibility, they need to divest from oil companies. And so there is serious pressure in the oil industry. On top of that, the shale revolution from high prices the shale revolution has changed not necessarily what producers are have for a supply on that day, but our, our perception of the rarity of oil has changed, and it will take a long time for that to shake out. And so the supply, the long-run supply of oil has been increased for a significant amount of time because if the price goes up, we can, in the short run, we can cut down oil production. We can turn off a well, we can turn off exploration, we can, etc. But oil is now profitable at a much lower price than what it may have been. And so, as the price ticks up, more production is going to come online immediately. And it sets a new ceiling for our oil prices. 
that new ceiling is probably after this after this shakeout we're probably looking at a ceiling that is you know $45 a barrel something like that and and consider $45 a barrel for 3 or 4 or 5 years without any savings what we'll have to do is we're going to have to change the way that Alaska runs its its state because if you make investments into infrastructure when you make those investments you need to continue to have revenue coming in sufficient to maintain those investments and this is how uh, celebrities can can end up going bankrupt etc you wonder well they had so much money but they build out their lives in such a way that when the money stops coming in they can't maintain it Alaska is quickly becoming a state that can't maintain what we've built on our current structure. We may not be able to maintain schools, open schools in, across the state that are educating 10 or 11 or 12 students. And that's something that I am opposed to. I would prefer that we keep schools open in every single village across this state but you can't look at it pragmatically you can't look at it and say that that's what i want to have happen at some point you have to accept reality so some of our schools are going to close down which are going to kill some of our rural villages and that's going to happen some people are, are some people would applaud that and and I, I think that that's a lack of understanding and a lack of compassion for some of these communities. But here's the reality. They're going to have to close. We are going to have to be more selective about which communities are allowed or which communities have access to money from the state to run schools, especially if the schools are not being as successful. And you can go in and listen to uh, episode 12 when I talked to Bob Griffin. It's not necessarily that rural school rural school districts are doing more poorly than uh, urban school districts. In fact, he argues the opposite. We have a permanent fund dividend that is likely, and this is just just being obvious or being honest with, with the situation where we have a permanent fund dividend that will likely be eliminated. And that will be used to finance government operations. And, and um, some people dislike that. Some people don't. But that's just the reality. And we're going to have taxes that come in. We're going to pass taxes. And in episode six, when I was talking with Ed King, he didn't believe about the taxes. Hopefully I have him back sometime soon. But he, he thought maybe oil prices would, would stay up a, a bit higher and we would be able to respond or be able to avoid having taxes but now it looks like it looks like that's something that we're not going to be able to avoid we have power cost equalization and this is i receive power cost equalization i die i live in bristol bay <clears throat> and some urban folks will say well Power cost equalization is a subsidy for your electricity, but this is all, none of this is an understanding of the situation. I mean, when you look at natural gas production 
per se in Cook Inlet, it's been heavily subsidized. We have done a lot of things to build out the infrastructure of the rail belt and to get cheaper cost energy to the more populated areas. And so power cost equalization was an attempt to spread some of those investments into our entire economy in the state. Back to the beginning when I was talking about the greater good, at some point there's going to be a winner and a loser, and rural communities receiving power cost equalization are going to be a loser in this scenario. They're going to be a loser because people are going to view that it's a choice to live in the rural communities, it's a choice to pay that that cost, utilities are going to be hurt, and businesses are already not receiving power cost equalization. It's generally residential consumers and so it won't have a giant impact on on commercial on on commercial businesses etc we're we're going to be looking at a situation where revenue sharing to some of our communities are just not going to happen and when you look at revenue sharing if you actually run the if you actually look at the numbers this would take a long time for me to show you exactly what this is but there are numerous communities in the state where they pay nearly as much in revenue sharing for a lobbyist to go and get them revenue sharing as they receive in revenue sharing. And all numbers are fungible, I get that, but revenue sharing just doesn't seem to be a uh, a viable, something that's, that's viable for us. Continuing on, revenue sharing will get cut, and that's going to hurt smaller communities. It's also going to hurt larger communities. I mean, Anchorage is the largest re- recipient of revenue sharing. When you look at some of the more remote areas, there's probably going to be a push for some borough uh, borough formations so that local governments could administer more more taxes and and to provide more community development, community resources to to smaller communities, and some of that is reasonable. But overall our state will have to make some harder decisions because when you look at these, they're more, they're easier. They're actually easier decisions to make than what, what we will really have to do is K through 12 education will have to be restructured, reformed. And unless we can, unless we can have a significant spike in oil, which doesn't seem possible or significant production increases, which You've seen ConocoPhillips cutting ConocoPhillips and oil search cutting two hundred seventy million dollars worth of projects. Unless we have those increases, we will need to cut some K through twelve education. That's going to be a difficult thing to to stomach. It's going to be difficult because we have had the money and the ability to build out. A wonderful state and then we'll have to be more selective going forward but we don't want to lose our quality of life and in some places we'll probably have to be sacrificing it and another thing that that people would worry about is it seems apparent that at some point in the near future this just seems like a growing swell that we will see a ban on new drilling on federal lands. Hopefully, hopefully we have the capacity to get an exemption in Alaska. Alaska has been 
has tended to have um, exemptions to policies like this, but we are moving towards and and something to something to keep in mind is that we have to answer this from a from a party from from our politicians whether or not they support drilling that it should be a requirement it should be a question of every single one of our politicians do you support drilling in anwar do you support drilling on federal lands do you support oil production in the state of alaska because oil production in the state of alaska has brought electricity to villages all across this state, has brought schools to villages all across the state, which we're about ready to lose. It has built an infrastructure that we would have never thought possible with the roads and connectivity and the tourism industry and everything that we have making Anchorage a normal, a very normal city. All of these things have in large part been a product of oil production on the North Slope. And so we'll have to determine whether or not oil production is something that we want to continue to promote or whether we're ready to just move on from it. Because right now, federally, they are talking about banning oil development on federal lands. And what people have to keep in mind is that the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska is federal. That's where the, uh, it's where the majority of our development is happening right now. And if the storm, clan, storm clouds of, of this type of policy begin to build, at some point it becomes very difficult for us to continue to attract oil companies to Alaska if we say, come to Alaska, our oil-filled Prudhoe Bay was supposed to already be out of oil, somehow we're continuing to produce. You can't uh, drill on the federal lands, which is a significant portion up there. We're not going to open up Anwar, and drilling offshore is not something that we're willing to do. Plus, because of new markets, we're certainly not going to ever monetize our natural gas. But please come up here and continue to produce. It's something that we probably have to prepare to lose. So in the first in the first episode, me doing a monologue, this is going to end up being something that I look back on and it's something that I would like to avoid for, for the future. It's something that I'm certain that I won't even be able to listen to, but I'm glad that you were able to listen to. I'm trying to lay out the framework for for continued discussion moving forward as the situation is getting more and more dire. And I just hope that you take everything that I said with a bit of a grain of salt, but then come back for episode 14 and come back for episode 15, 16, and future episodes as we work through all of these ideas. I hope that if you're in Anchorage and you're under the, the hunker down, that, that you are following the hunker down because if we're going to, like, we're doing this. We're doing this. We're hunkering down. If if what we do at the end of the day is we destroyed the global economy for everybody to uh, kind of take half measures on it and that the, and and then we find that we overwhelmed our medical community anyways and that the spread continues and that after all of these policies we have another giant spike we do that in a worse economic situation than we were in before and this will have been all for naught. So I would say that we need to follow the follow the policies, but also think critically about how we shape this in the future because it's times like these when 
temporary relief is traded for a permanent program and a, and a permanent change in the way that our the way that our lives run and it's a very dangerous time next week we'll have the guest back you won't have to listen to just me and i appreciate it stay safe and enjoy your family as much as you can thanks